0: Well, we are moving through a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called the Book of Judges. It's a fairly long book, and we're we're taking some uh, aggressive sections to read uh, each time. So we have our a, a work cut out for us. I'm going to make one change, however, to what you have in your bulletin, and that is I'm going to pause midway through, right between chapter four and chapter five. Uh, And uh, we'll affirm this is the word of the Lord, and then I'm going to make some comments about it, and then we're going to read again. So that's a little different than what we normally do, but I think you'll see that that serves our purpose well. So um, uh, we will uh, begin in uh, Judges uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we'll continue through the end of chapter 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in uh, Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years." Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up for her judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor? taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, and Barak called out Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh, and ten thousand men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Zinaianim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Hereshephagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Habar the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, "'Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid.' So he turned aside to her uh, into the tent and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, "'Please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty.' So he opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, "'Stand at the opening of the tent.' And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking." So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. We will return to chapter 5 in just a moment, but we'll, we'll reflect on what's happening here. Uh, in the book of Judges, there's a frequent cycle that's repeated throughout the book. And uh, chapter 4 is familiar in that cycle. In that pattern, uh, the people who have been following God, who have been called by God, who have been brought into the land by God, turn from God. They begin to adopt the the patterns and practices of the tribes around them. They begin to worship other gods. They turn from God. God removes his protection and their enemies conquer them. It says in the text that the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin. And then the people suffer. And then they cry out to God. And then God raises up a judge to deliver them. And then they have peace for a period of time until they fall away again and the cycle repeats. We're already in the second or third iteration of that cycle. It moves a couple of times uh, along as we go. In some ways, this text is familiar, but there are two things about this passage that are different. The first is Deborah. Deborah is listed as being a prophetess. Uh, We read in verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, Uh, was judging Israel at that time. Uh, She brings the voice of God to the people as a prophet would do. In the Bible, she's not alone as being a female prophet or a prophetess. While it's not uncommon, it's not as extraordinary as one might think at first and doesn't elicit comment in the book. In the Old Testament, Miriam, Huldah, and Isaiah's wife are listed as a prophetess. In the New Testament, Anna, who received baby Jesus in the temple, as well as uh, Philip's four unmarried daughters are listed as prophetesses. In the book, uh, in his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives instructions to the Corinthian church about how women would prophesy in church, uh, presumably in a public setting. Now we stand with a historic Protestant position that the age of prophets ended with the apostolic age and the composition of the Bible. But we're reminded that God continues to use the words of his people to build up the church. Both men and women speaking truth and love have powerful effects. Deborah is not just a prophetess however, but she was judging Israel. Of the uh, 12 judges listed in the book, she's the only one who is female. Unlike the other judges, she does not engage in warfare herself, but she works in conjunction with Barak to achieve military victory. And finally, she is the most exemplary character in the book. In a dark book where even the heroes are usually quite deeply flawed, She not only avoids grievous sin herself, but she leads others into faithfulness, calling them into faithfulness. She not only praises God, but calls others to join in the praise. Now, the second interesting thing, however, about Judges chapter 4 is that it's followed immediately by Judges chapter 5. Judges 4, as you've noticed, is a narrative section. It tells a story in linear order. It reads like a history book. But as we'll see in a moment, Judges chapter 5 is something very different. It covers the exact same events, and looks at the same period of time, but instead of being historical narrative, it's a song. It's a prophetic song that Deborah sings. Now there are many places in the Bible where historic narratives are described, either in prophetic literature or in poetic songs, but there's only one other place where the event and the song were put back to back. That other place is Exodus chapter 14 and 15. This great story of deliverance where God saves his people from the armies of Pharaoh. And as, as the waters recede, washing away the armies of Pharaoh, Miriam, the prophetess, takes her tambourine and leads her people in singing. So in an episode that evokes memories of God's great deliverance in the book of Exodus, we have both history and song. And it's that aspect of song that I would really like to focus on today. We're going to return to chapter 5. I know this is a lot of reading, but I hope that you get a sense of just how extraordinary this is. This back-to-back narrative and song. What do we learn as we look at this passage not just through the eyes of fact, but of song. When we hear the prophetic voice singing and describing and pressing home certain truths, not just as bare information, but pushing them into our hearts. I'm going to read Deborah's song, and we'll spend our time focusing on that together. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of uh, Abinuam, on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeated the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kindness. From Makir marched down to the commanders and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak into the valley. They rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling of the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. They fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought from their courses they fought against sisera the torrent kishon swept them away the torrent the ancient torrent the torrent kishon march on my soul with might then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping galloping of his steeds curse meraz says the angel of the lord curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the lord to the help of the lord against the mighty most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds and nobles' bowls. She sent her hand to the tent bag and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera, wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess's answer. Indeed, she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? a womb or two for every man, spoil dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends will be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Now, we've already done quite a bit of work. Uh, I acknowledge that. We'll try to move quickly. But I, I hope you at least can feel off the bat the, the very different pattern of the writing. The, the, the way the death is described is more matter of fact in chapter 4. But in chapter 5, the, the, the rhythms of the poetry really emerge. The workman's mallet begins to emerge in our mind's eye. And as she strikes Sisera, he falls. He, you see the patterns in verse 27. Between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. You feel the, the, this, this uh, warrior falling into death, so to speak, with the poetic image. But is it really necessary for us to have poetry and song in the Bible? And some of you are old enough to remember in the 1950s, a TV show, a police show called Dragnet. It was famous for a very matter-of-fact police officer. And and though Joe Friday never actually said in the original series, just the facts, ma'am, That summarized his approach and a a song that reflected on the show, became popular, and soon, as people thought of the show Dragnet, they thought simply of the phrase, just the facts. That's sort of our, our modern approach to things, isn't it? Just give us the facts. The poetry is added on, it's window dressing, it's extra, and yet God doesn't think so. He finds it's important that the Bible is not merely a set of propositions or a history and a story, but through the songs and the prophets, we are trained to think about the story. What I'd like to tell you tonight, and briefly in the time we have remaining, is just to point out the ways in which Deborah's Song takes the facts and presses them into our hearts, into our experience. Because I think this is very important for us as we consider how to read the Bible. Some of us are tempted to read the Bible merely as historians. Merely trying to extract from it the information to tell a story or perhaps to arrange the certain doctrines in the right order so we can think rightly. There's an importance in all of that, an importance in right doctrine. There's an importance in good history, of hearing God's work of redemption among his people. But the Bible itself is interested in more than that. It wants us to engage personally with the material. I believe as we look at this passage, there are at least three ways in which Deborah helps us to do that. She takes the mere facts... And she presses them into our life, puts them before our face, and draws us, calls us to engage with an ancient story in a way that's personal. Let me show you three ways I think we see that in the text. The first is she shows us the desperation and the depth of the problem. You know, as we read the text in in chapter 4, we can read things like this. We say, the Lord sold them into the hand, of slavery, and he oppressed the people cruelly. That's information, that's a fact, that's helpful, it's important. But Deborah helps us feel it. She helps us enter the story. Now look with me in verse 6. She says, in the days of Shamgar, he was the, the the last judge mentioned, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, she would be the woman, this strange woman from a foreign tribe who would bring the final stroke of deliverance In those days, the highways were abandoned and the travelers kept to the byways. Isn't that an interesting sort of poetic detail? As the Canaanite army cruelly oppressed them, the people of Israel increasingly couldn't go out on the open streets. They had to slink around, so to speak, in the byways. They couldn't go out for fear that they would be abducted or their materials would be taken. Verse 7, the villagers ceased in Israel They ceased to be until I arose. Even the village life is beginning to die off under the oppressive power of the Canaanites. The culture of God's people is at risk. The situation is dire. Verse 8, new gods were chosen. It's it's another uh, insight that shows the depth of the problem. It wasn't just an outside force. But in chapter 4, verse 1, we heard, "...the people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord." Deborah tells us that their syncretism amounted to spiritual betrayal. They had abandoned God and found new gods. In, then war was in the gates. Verse 8 continued, was a shield or spear to be found among the 40,000 in Israel. Apathy was set in on the land. They have no weapons with, with to defend themselves. There is no army. The people themselves have been compromised. They're hiding in their villages. They can't go out on the roads. The situation is desperate. And then God calls Deborah. She speaks of herself as a mother of Israel. It's one of the interesting features of the story that women feature so strongly. Jael teams with Deborah together to offer the defeat of Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army. Jael herself is an interesting character. She's spoken of as being a Kenite. She's from the tent people, Deborah says, which means she's not from the tribe of Israel. She's from a nomadic people who were traveling nearby and were told in chapter 4 that her, her, her tribe had been aligned with the Canaanites and made a treaty. And so her behavior is incredibly unexpected and dangerous for her to participate in. It's a reminder that in this desperate situation, God is able to use unlikely people to bring victory in ways that are surprising. Surprising in that setting and even surprising today. Now, as you might imagine, Deborah is a an unique and interesting character. And many people have had purposes for Deborah. This interesting woman who emerges as a mother in Israel. In the, uh, the history of England, uh, Queen Elizabeth I was fond of using images and language of Deborah to describe her own place as Queen of England. Uh, one uh, historian at the time, one contemporary, described the way in which her coronation was, desc- was shown in plays throughout the kingdom. And in the coronation, Deborah, uh, Queen Elizabeth would sit under a palm tree just like Deborah to show that she had biblical support for her role. There is a temptation for modern people, however, to to bring Deborah into as an agent in their modern stories. Uh, Daniel Block, author of the New American Commentary on Judges, notes that uh, there's been more scholarly discussion on these two chapters in the book of Judges in recent history than anything else. People are interested in Deborah, and yet, it's tempting to make Deborah a character in our modern stories, in our modern cultural moment, with great interest in issues of gender equity and the role of women in culture at large. It's tempting for people to pluck Deborah out of her context, and in so doing, miss the story that she's telling us. I think that some of the insights that Deborah offers in her song are unique to her place as a woman. We see that particularly in the final closing scene. She speaks with sort of prophetic insight, imagining what it would be like for Sisera's mother to look for him to come home, wondering where the chariots are and why they're not returning. And at this scene, as it unfolds, we're reminded that Deborah's purpose is not to pit men against women, but to show the brutality of the Canaanite culture found both in the oppressive warlords as well as the pampered women who watch from their windows of Lattice. As she worries that the delay has taken too long, the attendants of Sisera's mothers surround her. And they comfort themselves by thinking of all the spoil that will be taken. All the stuff that will be taken from Israel. And then in words that are both coarse and callous, they uh, describe in in just sort of a a toss-off language, verse uh, 30, there will be a womb or two for every man. The women of Israel have been reduced in the minds of the women of Canaan to being merely a part of the body, available like all other spoils to be consumed by the victorious army. I think what Deborah offers us here is an interesting insight, a powerful and provocative insight into just how desperate the situation was. For the Israelite army going against these massive uh, Canaanite chariots of iron, the, the tanks of the ancient world defeat would have meant not just the death of their soldiers and the taking of their property, but the defilement of the women and the destruction of the families. It's against this backdrop that we hear Deborah's call to action. The second thing that Deborah does is she calls people to action. Now, Deborah describes herself as a uh, a mother of Israel. And she does, as a mother, what many mothers have done in the history of, of of the world. She calls her sons to action. Not her literal sons, but as mother of Israel, she calls the sons of Israel to action. Now, on one hand, Deborah is uh, doing far more than we might expect a woman to do in the ancient Near East. But there's also limits on what she can do. She does not lead the army. Instead, at this critical junction in the history of Israel, God calls her to call others. We see in the text in chapter 4 that she summoned, sent for and summoned Barak. Then she said to him, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, the God commands you to take lead of the army. When he hesitates, she agrees to go with him, and through her encouragement and support, they go on to victory. But as she sings her song, it's this characteristic of Deborah that really comes to the forefront. When given the mic, so to speak, she's constantly calling, recruiting, and challenging others to follow God. One of the unique features and the powerful features of Deborah is not just that she's committed, but she calls others to commitment. Look at verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. In a similar way in verse 9, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people, bless the Lord. It's like she's giving a big shout out to those that serve. And then in verses 12 to 23, she basically does a roll call of the army. She rehearses those tribes that went out in victory. There are six listed that participated. and She celebrates their role. They they answered the call when we were desperate. They became uh, uh, used by God for his purpose at this time. You know, when we uh, purchased this building, uh, we had things in it from Greenfield Presbyterian Church. And one of the things they had, and we still have them in the basement, are these lists of soldiers that went to war. They list those that fought in the first war and the second war, the sense of roll call of remembrance. It's sort of the essence of what Deborah is doing here. But she does it with an edge. As a mother bear, so to speak, she's willing to say the hard things. And the hard thing is that not everyone answered the call. So her roll call lists not only those that fought, but those who didn't fight. Reuben stayed home among the flocks, listening to the shepherds play their music, and the tribe of Dan just stayed with their boats on the sea. Two of the tribes far to the south, including the great tribe of Judah, weren't listed at all. It's a stark reminder that at a time of great need, the alliance of 12 tribes is already showing signs of weakness. But Deborah's song serves as a challenge for future activity. Look in verses 23 and 24, there's a curse on Meraz, an Israelite city that refused to fight for their kinsmen, but a blessing on Jael the Kenite, a foreigner who strikes a decisive and unexpected blow. that that seals their deliverance. And so Deborah moves to close by asking the question, whose side are you on? Do you align yourselves with God's purposes? Do you answer the call when things are hard, or will you find an excuse to stay home with the boats and the sheep, avoiding the hard work as others go out? Third and finally, however, Deborah turns her attention towards God in worship. It's this aspect that I find most striking. And most interesting as we compare the narrative of chapter 4 with the prophetic song of chapter 5. Instead of saying God did, she turns our attention to God himself. Verse 4, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai, before the Lord God of Israel. She looks at a battle of humans moving back and forth, and she says, No, I can see God in the midst of it. And she tells the story as if God was present with them. We can see why Deborah was an encouragement Why, Barak would have wanted him with her. She speaks of God and brings confidence and encouragement. It's the Lord who's going out to fight for you. And in verse 19, when she describes the heavenly battle, she says the kings fought. But then she lifts her eyes and describes a heavenly war that's going on beyond human sight. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. As a side note, when we see together her reference to God approaching in the clouds, dropping water, and the water washing away the army, we not only hear reminders of the book of Exodus, but also get a clue of maybe what actually happened in the battle. We were told in the history books that when uh, uh, Sisera Brought his chariots down through the river, uh, down to the riverbed of Kishon. He expected to stampede across the uh, the beleaguered Israelite army. But all we know is that the tables were turned on him, and it may have been a sudden torrential downpour turned the river valley into mud, and as the wheels of the chariots bogged and 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 uh, bogged to a crawl we see that Cicero was forced to flee on foot. Behind all of this, she sees with prophetic insight that God himself was at work. And yet she doesn't end there. As she does in other things, in her typical style, she calls others to participate in giving praise to God. Verses 10 and 11, tell of it, she says, to those that ride donkeys as well as to those who walk. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeated the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Tell of it, she says. The song calls us to engage. There are many facets of this story we might like more information about. We'd like to know exactly what Deborah's role was and and, and what window that might offer us into the place that women had in the ancient world or in Israel. We're not given as much as we would like, but what Deborah does tell us takes the story that could otherwise seem distant and academic and she applies it to our hearts. Look, she says, your situation is more desperate than you can imagine. The enemies that we face are not just outside us, but inside us as well. She reminds us in her song that it was the betrayal of God's people that led to this problem in the first place. We need to be saved not only from others, but from ourselves. And look, she says God calls you not just to be an observer, the salvation that He offers through the great Redeemer, Jesus Christ, is given to all by faith. But we're called to respond. We're called not just to sit by, with the, the sheep or the goats and the boats, but to engage and to enter in when things are difficult. But above all, she reminds us to turn our vision to God himself. It's God who goes with us. It's God who fights for us. He's called us to good works, but he's prepared them in advance that we should walk in them. And with this encouragement, we're reminded of the biggest summary lesson of all from the book of Judges. And that is God is active, intimately active in human affairs. At our low points, at the points where it seems there's no way out and no way to go forward, God himself enters the story. He accomplishes his salvation in unlikely places through unlikely people. He is worthy worthy of our trust and worthy of our praise. Let's pray together.